Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled What Has the Banking Crisis Changed? It is the 12th of April. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Seamus Lyons and Alex Byrne. After the turbulent days of early March, triggered by the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, markets now seem to view the banking crisis as a small number of idiosyncratic events. And yet a broader credit squeeze remains a possibility, which could rein in economic growth. At the time, central banks were forced to weigh the fight to control inflation against the security of the financial system. Next steps for policy have become unclear, not only in the US and Europe, but also in Japan. We will consider whether or how this brief banking crisis has altered the investment outlook. Seamus, if you could please set the scene, how did markets react to this episode of March madness among the banks and how have they settled since? Hi, Lorna. Indeed, March Madness is a pretty good way to describe it because following a pretty reasonably benign start to the year, investors and markets became a lot more worried for a period in March and we saw volatility rising materially in both equity and bond markets. So what exactly happened? So as you mentioned in your introduction, in the early days of March and over the course of just a few days, a number of US regional banks went bust, Silicon Valley Bank being the most prominent of these. And then we had fears of contagion and worries that this could be the beginning of a systemic banking crisis began to fluctuate through the market. At the same time, or shortly afterwards in Europe, Credit Suisse, one of the two largest banks in Switzerland, also came under stress and was forced into a merger with its rival, UBS. So financial markets, as you can imagine, did not fare well during this period. So equities globally sold off, bond prices rallied strongly. And in contrast to other recent market sell-offs, the brunt of the selling was primarily in those areas that were most affected, so most notably in financials and in some cyclical parts of the markets. Some of the more growth-orientated parts of the markets held up much better, and this actually helped the broader indices post only modest falls during this period. And then following some assurances and interventions from the Fed and other central banks, the initial panic subsided somewhat. And actually, we've seen markets move higher since then, and they now actually back towards their year-to-date highs that they were enjoying in the early part of March. Outside of bonds and equities, we've seen some moves in other asset classes as well. Gold, this rallied through the $2,000 mark as investors sought out safe haven assets. Commodities, they moved around a lot during the last few weeks. But most recently, they've actually been rising, most notably the oil price. This has jumped in the back of production cut announced recently by uh, OPEC. So yeah, certainly it's been an interesting uh, few weeks for financial markets. Yes, yeah, thank you for that. Perhaps we could explore the central bank's dilemma a little further. Indeed, yes. The events of March have made many question central bank policy from here and the future direction of interest rates. So the Fed and other central banks have been very clear for some time now that getting inflation under control remains at the top of their agenda. Whilst they acknowledge there might be a bit of economic pain and maybe some weakening in the job market as a result of their monetary tightening, any slowdown will be more gradual and a soft landing for the economy remain the most likely scenario. This is what the Fed have been telling us and other central banks. But now, you know, we've had a potential systemic event in the banking system where some banks are failing due to increasing interest rates and tighter financial conditions. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of reassessing as to what the central banks will need to do from here. Will they change course given the negative impact their rate rises are beginning to have? That's the key question. At the same time, though, the inflation picture is not improving as quickly as it has been. So recent inflation data prints have been a lot more mixed and more importantly, the core inflation, this is proving to be a lot more sticky than it had been. So for instance, 
the most recent CPI print, again, it came out a little bit higher than expected, showed a, a modest increase in the previous month. So this is an issue. So obviously the Fed and our central banks, their job is not done here yet. So this puts them in a bit of a bind. They're trying to manage both financial stability and price stability at the same time. It is a very serious dilemma. And indeed, the International Monetary Fund has recently warned that global growth will be lower unless inflation is tackled. The central bank's remit on controlling inflation is well known, but nonetheless, market expectations for the path of US interest rates appear to have adjusted downwards over the last few weeks. Yes, so before the recent banking stresses, bond yields had actually been rising steadily, particularly in February. As hawkish commentary from the Fed, they said investors reassessed their expectations on any rate cuts or pivots that, that they thought might be coming. So at the time, you know, they expected no cuts that were going to come this year, and we might even see further rate rises than we're currently priced in. This is the situation going back into late February, early March. But following the events of March, these expectations have completely changed. So now market participants are expecting rates to peak very, very shortly. So the terminal rates were almost there. But what's more interesting is that they now expect a number of rate cuts before the end of the year. This is a big change to the situation a few weeks ago. So in the space of a few very short weeks, expectations on the path of interest rates have changed dramatically. But, you know, it's worth saying there's been a few occasions in the last year or so where markets have gotten ahead of themselves and began to price in a Fed pivot or more imminent rate cut. And each time, shortly thereafter, a hawkish commentary from the Fed has helped reset these expectations back down again. So it remains to be seen whether this time the same thing will happen. With the inflation picture remaining somewhat muddy still, you know, we, we talked about some of the core inflation numbers coming in higher than they had been expected and not moderating at the same degree. Is it likely that the Fed's going to ease off and loosen monetary policy in this situation. They're very conscious of previous eras of high inflation where uh, their predecessors at the Fed, they took their foot off the pedal too soon. And in those instances, stayed out inflation become more ingrained and became a bigger issue trying to get it under control. So they're very much aware of this. But, you know, at the same time, if economic growth begins to slow and become more fragile and stresses begin to appear in the system, Fed and other central banks, their hands might be somewhat forced to do something different. Yes, and thank you for putting that into perspective for us. If we can turn to Europe, Alex, the European Central Bank showed great determination back in March to stay the course on interest rate hikes. But have market expectations also altered in the Eurozone in recent weeks? Afternoon, Lorna. The ECB did indeed maintain their commitment to tame inflation, despite those banking stresses which Seamus mentioned, raising their depository interest rate 0.5% to 3.0% overall, as the market previously expected. It was clear, though, that this turbulence has clouded the outlook somewhat. Markets only a few weeks ago anticipated more than 1% of additional rates in the future. Now this is halved to only 0.5% rises in the upcoming months and with the 70% chance of a 0.25% of this coming in May. ECB now see inflation coming down to 2.9% in 2024 and 2.1% in 2025, both clearly above the 2% target range. That gives you some sense of the potential staying power of higher rates without any market crises intervening. Yes, and as Seamus mentioned, after Silicon Valley Bank collapse, we saw a spillover to the Swiss banking sector, Credit Suisse. Then there was a bout of concern for some other big European names. What are your thoughts there? Generally, European banks are in a very strong position. Their key capital and liquidity metrics are almost uniformly robust. There is likely, however, to be more scrutiny by investors in a number of specific areas for banks, given the fallout from SVB. Those areas, particularly the ones where SVB had uh, significant difficulties, stemming from things such as their bond portfolio, how they price these, and also the deposit flows in and out. 
as this work through, trading volatility is likely to be quite volatile around, around banks. For Credit Suisse specifically, which was forcibly sold to rival UBS to show confidence before a potentially systemically important bank collapsed, there were a series of scandals bad business judgments and rotating executive teams in recent years. They had attempted to shore up capital and liquidity by increasing borrowing, but stuttered confidence in banking because of SVB and the bank's top backers announcing that they would provide no further funding proved to be the final straw. This is more though a death of a thousand cuts rather than a systemic issue in European or Swiss banking. But other obvious bad actors in European banking do still exist, and in deposit banks especially, confidence is everything. It's almost impossible to reverse a banking run once it's begun. Well, quite, and we await further developments there, perhaps. Turning to Japan, though, the new Bank of Japan governor has held his first press conference. Any hints of a shift from their ultra-loose monetary policy? Somewhat unexpectedly, the answer is no. Weda, who's the new BOJ governor, at his press conference backed the yield curve control and negative rate, which are those key differentiators of Japan's banking position versus the rest of the developed world banks. As a reminder, the yield curve control pegs the 10-year government bond yield around zero within a tight range. The likelihood is the bank wants to see the inflation number sustained above their 2% target for some time. We have seen some developments of this happening in the not-so-distant past, but a completely different landscape exists than we see in the US and Europe. What would be the likely timing on any adjustment in policy? Probably won't come as any surprise, but it's complicated. It may seem strange to be tightening now when you think most other markets are about to reach peak rates and there potentially are increased risks of recession from the US. The market expectation for this is to remain slow. The first thing that's likely to change being the yield curve control, either it being removed completely, moving the 10-year peg further down the yield curve to the five-year, for instance, where it has less impact, or some other level of loosening around the range that it's allowed to trade in. They did this in December. It came as something of a shock to market and had a significant impact on yields in Japan, but also the currency, the yen. There's a good likelihood either of these could be implemented within the next six months. However, some of the sternest pressures the BOJ faced to tighten have eased now in terms of defending the currency and the yield curve. But as noted, there are some green shoots of structural inflation now. So at some point, reducing the looseness of this policy will be needed, likely before it gets significantly restrictive. It does, however, raise the possibility of repatriation of Japanese money onshore. There's a huge amount of Japanese overseas investments in things like US Treasury bonds, which, as the rate divergence between the US and Japan lessens, becomes less and less attractive being overseas. Yes, that would clearly offer potential support for the yen from tighter Bank of Japan policy, and that would likely impact the US dollar. Any thoughts on the dollar moves over the last month, Seamus? Yes, so the US dollar is generally perceived as a safe haven currency, and so in periods of market distress, it should be expected to do quite well relative to other currencies. And this is exactly what we saw in March. So the DXY, which is an index of US dollar versus a basket of other currencies, using this as a proxy, in early February, this was trading around 101. But by the height of the banking stresses in the second week of March, it had risen to 106. So quite a sharp upward move in the dollar. Since then, we've actually seen it retrace lower, and right now it's back around the level of 102. Some of this move actually can be explained as well, though, by interest rate expectations in the US. In February, there was notable upward moves in bond yields and interest rate expectations, and this tends to be positively correlated to the US dollar on expectations that's going to receive further flows with higher rates. But then, as bond yields and rate expectations begin to fall back again in March, 
June distresses and the banking crisis, so too did the US dollar. So this does explain some of the moves. But indeed, we have seen some moves in the dollar. It's fair to say now it's back to the levels it has been for much of the year so far. Thanks for that. Could you just give us a few words on the first quarter reporting season, which is just about to kick off in the US? Yeah, sure. This would be an interesting quarter for earnings for sure. So firstly, this is going to be the weakest quarter we'll have for earnings since second quarter of 2020, right in the height of the COVID lockdowns. So earnings on average are expected to fall 7% year on year in the US. That's a pretty meaningful fall. That's generally already priced in. But whether companies can beat these expectations, that's going to be the key driver of markets in the near term. So how many positive earnings surprises we're going to see. What will also be very interesting, though, is the guidance that's going to come from companies in terms of how they see the rest of the year playing out. Financial companies and banks in particular, they're going to be under a lot of scrutiny for their comments on the credit conditions they're facing, their loan loss provisioning, as well as any efforts they're going to improve their capitalizations, given the recent stresses in the banking sector. Elsewhere, the technology community services sectors. These will also get a lot of attention. You know, many of the big bellwethers in the market are in these sectors. These areas and these companies have been cutting costs a lot recently. So it'll be interesting to see if this has much of an impact on their bottom lines and, and how this is playing out, or also if there's further kind of cost reduction measures to come. So there will be a lot. It's going to be another interesting quarter for earnings for sure, and a lot of interesting things to be focused on. Yes, indeed. And of course, the banks are always the first to report. And that'll be in the next few days. But in response to these turbulent recent times, then, Seamus, what are adjustments have we made to our tactical asset allocation? Yeah, so the price dislocations that were caused by these recent market movements have created a short-term market opportunity in our view. And so we actually used it as a reason to add risk within our portfolios. So whilst the recent developments in the US regional banking sector are concerning, we do view them as, as isolated events and not a systemic risk to the overall banking system. The broader banking system is very well capitalized these days, diversified across many clients and business lines. And whilst there's always going to be some outliers, it's not indicative of the overall health of the sector. So we believe that the recent sell-off was overdone, and then you should probably expect a near-term technical rebound. So since mid-March, we have been buyers of U.S. equities. So that's been working well so far. Elsewhere, we still maintain our overweight to Asia and emerging markets. We like these areas for a while now. We expect them to do quite well in the reopening of the Chinese economy. Elsewhere, so in bond markets, we have witnessed some dramatic moves in March, with yields falling globally on risk-off concerns and expectations that central banks will ease their monetary tightening programs. We felt the these moves were overdone, and so we've begun to reduce our allocations to bonds and to go underweight duration, so to go underweight fixed income as a result. Within bonds, so we have maintained our overweight to emerging market debt. We see this as a very interesting asset class where the credit spreads and yields are trading at quite attractive levels, giving us some interesting alpha opportunities. So yeah, they're, they're the main changes we've done more recently. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.